Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your reminders to us. I pray you would give us ears to hear and hearts to receive what you would have us to hear and receive. And may our lives reflect our trust and our obedience to your word. I ask this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. We're going to continue in the book of Hebrews. We're going to pick up right where we left off last week. We ended last week at the end of chapter 12. Uh, and we pick up today with our readings in the beginning of chapter 13. And I want to begin by noting what seems to be a very abrupt change of tone. We're likely to, to miss this because of one, there's a chapter break and we sort of give our minds a rest whenever we get to this Chapter breaks, of course, you know, are added to the scripture. When the writer of the Hebrews was writing this, he didn't stop and give chapter and verse. We added these later. But there's a chapter break there. We've also gone a week between our readings, so we're likely to miss the abrupt change in tone. But we go from this admonition to God's covenant people to remember who you are to remember the fact that you are in covenant with this God. We go from the sort of the thunder and lightning, uh, that is chapter number 12, the terrifying yet awesome reminder that we are in covenant with a consuming fire, to 13 where he simply gives us this list of things we should do. Seems an abrupt change. But the effect, I think, is to have us read these commands with the admonitions of chapter 12 still ringing in our ears. To read them, if you will, by the light of this consuming fire. In other words, you take them seriously. It is also, I think, an expression of the fact often shown in the epistles that these practical commands, things you must do, practical things, we call them practical, are part and parcel of the theoretical teachings that preceded them. I'm not a big fan of the divide between the practical and the theoretical, but we often give them these labels. And the, the writers are saying, remember, you don't have one without the other. If you have this, you have the other. These, these two things go hand in hand. Now, the commands that are given us in chapter number 13 don't really need a ton of explanation. They're, they're, they're pretty obvious. So my job today is simply to hold them up and to have us consider them and to think of them in what we see in our own lives. He begins with, let brotherly love continue. Now this is one of the most common themes in the writings of the apostles in the New Testament. They are constantly telling us, let brotherly love continue. Love one another. Guys, love one another. And they don't constantly tell us this because... It feels good. It's a nice thing to say. It's sort of pleasant. We all agree, yeah, we should all love one another. They don't tell us that for that reason. They tell us that because we are in constant need of being reminded that we are to love one another because it's a hard thing to do and we don't do it well. So we are constantly need to be told over and over and over and over again, love one another. Those of us who are parents of multiple children understand this. 
One of the common themes of parenting multiple children is, guys, be good to one another. Love one another. Your brothers and sisters love one another. Take care of one another. And why do we do this? Because we are usually witnessing an appalling lack of brotherly love at the moment. Or we see an upcoming situation. It's coming quickly. Something like two siblings getting within throwing distance of one another. And we know what's going to happen. We know there's going to be a diminishing of expressions of love and affection. And so we tell them, love one another. So God is constantly telling us, guys, love one another. Adults aren't much better at this than children. We just have more refined ways of not loving one another. So we're constantly told, love one another. Matter of fact, it's interesting. Often, very often, this is the first admonition, the first command. When we go from sort of the theoretical to the, the practical, this is where we start. It starts here. Guys, love one another. Be good to one another. Act like your family in the good, good sense of being family. Be good to one another. And so we have that. I, I am grateful to say that I, I think St. Andrews does a pretty good job of this. I have seen great acts of love, um, brotherly love, uh, here amongst this family. But I don't want to stop telling us. I don't want to stop reminding us. Because when we stop reminding ourselves of truth, it's when we tend to go off the rails. So, guys, continue in love for one another. Next, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Hospitality is not as prominent a thing in our culture as it was in the culture from whence this comes. Of course, I think we're, we're probably all aware that in ancient times, especially ancient Near East, uh, hospitality was a massive part of their culture. Uh, especially going back to the Old Testament, it wasn't just a matter of being nice. It was a matter of survival, of staying alive. You had to be hospitable, and it became a massive part of their culture. And they were very hospitable, and they continue. Many cultures in other parts of the world continue to be a hospitable a culture. It's a massive part of their, what they do. We are more private people. And we have so con constructed our society as to minimize our dependence on one another and our practical need for hospitality in order to get by. We simply don't, in, in the sense of need, we don't need it as much. We've, we've built our society so that we don't have to, to, to get by. And we, we, we prioritize privacy so much that we like to be able to keep our distance from, from one another. And so that is simply how we are in our culture. But this is not a reason to ignore or diminish the command to be hospitable. It should rather be an occasion for us to reconsider our need for privacy and our independence from one another. Cultural differences, when I talk about cultural differences here, I'm talking about the difference between our culture and the culture of the, the different cultures that we find in biblical times when, 
when the books of the Bible were written. Those cultural differences, though helpful to recognize, are sometimes used as a way to get out of the clear teaching of Scripture. Well, that was just a different culture. It was a different time. You need to be very careful of that. Rather than doing that and letting our current culture judge what Scripture says, we should rather reverse, take what Scripture says and say, well, maybe there's something wrong in how we've constructed our culture. And let that judge us. Maybe we should give consideration to our need for privacy and keeping others at a, at a distance, at a sanitary distance. We are to be hospitable. But what is meant here is not necessarily, guys, okay, guys, have friends over for dinner more often. That's not necessarily what he's talking about when being hospitable. He says, don't neglect being hospitable to strangers, to people you don't know. Be careful how you pre- t- treat the person you don't know. The person you probably will never see again. The person with whom it will not, as far as you can tell, be of any advantage to you in the future to be good to now. I'm never going to see this person again. Does it really matter if I treat them well now? They're going to be of no use and good to me down the road in the future. Be careful how you treat that person, Scripture says. And it comes with a reason. Be careful, do not neglect to show hospitality to the stranger, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. I think the clear reference here, remember Hebrews is always referring to the Old Testament, the clear reference here is to the patriarchs who received visitors, strangers, who were angelic. We think of Abraham who received the three men coming to him uh, and he, we remember his hospitality going and killing the fatted calf. And preparing them a meal, and they gave him this blessing, the promise of a son. They went from there to Lot, who received Lot, received them into his home, and thereby was saved. Jacob, we remember, met the stranger on his way to meet with Esau, rest, had that wrestling match with him, and was blessed. The, the reference here is referring to remember, remember our, our fathers in the faith who came in contact with strangers and thereby were coming in contact with God and received blessings. Now, I have not ever had an experience with a stranger in which I thought, that was an angel. Maybe because I haven't been hospitable enough. Other, there are other people who have stories that included interactions with strangers that had elements that led them to possibly believe that was a miraculous event. That was something. I never saw that person again. So I'm sure that it happens. I've, especially in other cultures where the, the world of, of spiritual warfare is a much bigger thing than what we have here. There seems to be interactions more often. But this admonition is like, all right, be hospitable because you might entertain angels unaware is not a marketing ploy. It's not the sort of thing is like, Keep eating cereal because one in every 30,000 boxes has $500 in it, right? Keep being hospitable because one in every 500 strangers is going to be an angel, right? So that we have the attitude of every stranger we meet, 
asking them odd questions about their knowledge of the ethereal world, right? Having this temptation to invite them to a wrestling match to see if we can hold on long enough and get a blessing, right? Don't treat strangers like someone that you can use to your advantage. Rather, remember that God uses, God uses strangers as His messengers to us. We should listen to them. We should be good to them. It is also not wrong in this context to hear Christ's words in Matthew 25. When talking about, he says he has the parable of dividing the, the sheep from the goats. And he says to his hypothetical people standing in front of him, he says, I was hungry and you did not feed me. I was thirsty and you did not give me drink. I was a stranger and you did not take me in. I was sick and you did not visit me. I was naked and you did not clothe me. And the people respond with, when were you hungry and thirsty? A stranger, sick and naked. When did that happen? And we didn't provide for you. And Jesus says, whenever it happened, whenever you came across the least of the people around you who were in this condition and you didn't do that for them, then you didn't do it to me. Jesus sees those people, the least among us, as embodying himself. He will also tell his disciples in other places when they're going out, if people receive you, they receive me. So we receive strangers not as an avenue to our own blessing, but as an as a embodiment of Christ. And we be good to them. Number three, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who will, those ill-treated, since you also are in the body. This is, of course, the, the, the favorite verse of prison ministries. And that's good. And I want to affirm the understanding that we are not to forget or ignore those on the margins of society, those that society would have, uh, have out of sight, would have us ignore, would have us put away, don't look there. We're not to forget them. Prison ministries are good and right. Uh, when I was in college, I was involved throughout my time in college with the, with the prison ministry. I like to say that when I was in college, I was in and out of prison all the time. And it is true, but doing, doing ministry. So all that's good and that is right. But I think the passage here is not necessarily pointing to that, but rather it is more pointing to us not forgetting those imprisoned and ill-treated for the sake of Christ. We are to remember and pray for and support the persecuted church. Those with whom we are imprisoned, we are with them in prison because we are one body. We are one body with them, those who are ill-treated. We think of Paul in 1 Corinthians when he talks about us as the body. When one member suffers, the whole body suffers. We're not sure exactly who wrote the book of Hebrews. Paul is a, is a popular assumption that maybe he wrote it. Some even say Peter. Some would say Silas. All those three I just mentioned spent time in prison for the sake of Christ. 
that would be a thing that would be in their, in their mind. And Paul says, don't forget those who are part of your body, those who are suffering in Christ for the, in prison for the sake of Christ. Don't forget them. Remember them, pray for them, take care of them. Four, let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the immoral and the adulterous. Let marriage be held in honor. We are to honor those things that come from God and reflect God. Ultimately, all honor is given to God. But those things that come from Him directly, those things that reflect Him, we are to honor those as coming from Him. And those things that reflect Him most clearly are to receive more honor. And so it is, we, our ears perk up when, we say, when He says marriage should be held in honor. It is something that comes directly from God and reflects Him, is to reflect Him quite clearly. It does come from God. In the very beginning, God specifically institutes marriage. And He makes it. He builds it. it did, marriage does not exist solely as a matter of convenience. It does not exist solely as a way for me to meet my needs. Hopefully it does that. Hopefully it does. And it is intended to do some of that. But that is not the main purpose. That is not from where marriage gets its primary meaning. It gets its primary meaning as a transcendent, mysterious thing from God Himself. And this means we cannot do with it whatever we like. We cannot remake and reinvent it. Enter and leave it at our own discretion. It is a thing that comes from God. A few weeks ago, we talked about um, the Christian and biblical idea of sexual immorality, of what it should be, right? Of existing, but it should not. It should exist between exclusively between one man and one woman who are bound in the covenant of marriage, right? These are things that are rooted in God Himself, in the fact that we're made after His image, creative in in His image. We, saw, we looked at the fact that the Trinity itself is both oneness and otherness. And we see that in the beginning when, Genesis, when God makes man and woman a one and otherness and He brings them together to make one. This is the reflection of God Himself. And therefore we cannot do with marriage as we like. We are to hold it in honor as reflecting God. One of the things that made this clear to me was when I was ordained and going through the various functions that a priest has to um, perform, one of which is the ceremony of a wedding. Now, I've not done that yet, um, but I look forward to it. It's a great thing, and it is one of the functions of a, a, a priest. And it was pointed out to me that in officiating a wedding, I am not free or allowed to give free reign to the couple to do with whatever, whatever they want with the service. I don't, the couple doesn't come to me and I say, what would you like me to do in the service? How would you like the service to look like? What do you want to, what do you want to say? What prayers do you want to pray? You know, what do, what do you want my role to be? Rather, I am to, to conduct the service according to the service 
given to me by the church of which I'm a part. In other words, I have a service, and that is how the service looks like. We do it according to the service of the church. Now, there, there are some freedom for things like music that you can pick, maybe some certain readings that can happen, but for the most part, the service is as I, the representative of the church, give it and, and, and officiate it. Now, why this strictness? Why, is it, why don't these people get to choose what they... Their wedding, right? They're getting married. Why don't they get to decide what happens? It is in recognition of the fact that the couple does not marry themselves. It is something done to them, not something they do to themselves. When the couple comes to the church, they're asking God to do something to them. They're not telling God, this is what we're doing, all right? And we would like your blessing on it. They're saying, God, we want to become one. You do that. Please, will you do that to us? And they come to the church, his representative, to do that to them. Therefore, a wedding is the church's service. It is a thing of God given to us. And this makes sense of when Jesus says, what God has put together, let no man tear asunder. God has done that. That's God's work. All that to say that this is something that we are to hold in honor as coming from God. We are to honor it. And anything that destroys it, God says, I see that and I will judge that. And so he says, fornication and adultery, I see that. I will judge it. It is destroying my work. I take that seriously. Once again, we mentioned this last week. Adultery and idolatry go hand in hand to God. And he judges. We are to keep this institution that God gives us in honor. It is a serious thing. It is clearly a serious thing to God in Scripture. It reflects him, and we are to honor it. Five, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he, uh, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Hence we can say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Now I'm not actually going to spend a lot of time with this one, not because it's not important, but because it is my intention in the next several weeks, month or so, uh, to spend a lot more time with this. And so let me just say here that this is one of the commands we work hardest to justify getting around. For most of us, I think it takes nothing less than a miraculous grace of God to get us to really believe deep down that it is not our money and our possessions that will, in which we will find our help. Our attitude towards money is one of the things that most clearly reveals whether or not we actually trust God or not. That He will take care of us. That He will provide. Yet this is one that in this passage the writer spends most time with. In all these commands, he gives most time to this one. Do not love money. Be content 
Why? Because the Lord said, I am your helper. And we can say, or he, the Lord said, I will never forsake you. I will never fail you. And we can say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Do we trust God to be that helper? Or are we going to cling to money? Are we going to, at the end of the day, say, I, I trust God, but really, at the end of the day, my bank account is my helper. My 401k is my helper. I will not be afraid. I would be afraid if my bank account or my 401k was my helper. The Lord says, I will take care of you. Do not put your trust in money. Do not give your love and your worship to that. Number six, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their life and imitate their faith. Why is this important? Remembering also means, has, carries with it the idea of honoring. And it is honoring to God to recognize that He has put people in our lives to teach us His Word and to exemplify it in their lives. And we are to remember and honor those who have done that best for us. I especially think of those who have done it in our initial stages of our lives. Those, those who have put us in sort of a grounding in the faith, in the Word. I think of my parents who were the ones who taught me of, of the Word and, and exemplified by their life, faith. And I remember them and I honor them for having done that. And God says, when you honor, and I think what I hear there, when God says, when you honor them, you're honoring me. You're recognizing that I have given you this gift. Receive it. Don't neglect it. Don't give honor, more honor to people who are not teaching you the truth. Right? In the sense like the celebrity status of the world. Are we to honor people who entertain us more than we honor those who teach us and show us the word of God? No. How are we to, how are we to remember and honor them? What does that look like? I think any good leader will tell you that the best way to remember those who have taught you and led you in the word is to imitate them in their faith. As, as the passage says, imitate their life and faith. And that is how you honor them. To be faithful as they have been faithful. To love the word as they have loved the word. Honor them by following. Not them, but following God. Let me do more for a moment than just encourage you to remember those who have led you in the faith. Let me address for a moment a group of people who, are, who either are in position of leadership or someday may be in a position of leadership. Let me speak to a moment to men, to husbands and fathers. Your leaders of families. Be a man to whom those you lead will look back and remember your life. Remember the teaching of the word you've given them. 
remember the example of your life and say, that is a, that is a man worth following, worth being like. Be a leader of your family. Show your family what it looks like to follow God. To be like Christ. What did Christ do? He gives himself up for his family. He does not consider his own needs first. Men, don't consider your own needs first. Consider the needs of your wives and your, your children first. Don't be selfish. Sacrifice. Christ did it for us, and He is the example for us. The marriage, we just talked about it, honorable. It is a picture of Christ and His church. And as, as husbands, we are to see what does Christ do? He lays down His life for His family. Do that. Lay down your life. It is not enough. It, you should be teaching your family the Word as best you can or making sure they're getting teaching. But it is not enough to do that. Exemplify it in your life. For if you only teach, there will come a day when your children know who you are. And they will say, He may have taught me things that sounded good, but He did not live them. I will not remember him with honor. Be the kind of leader that the writer is talking about in Hebrews chapter number 13. It ends with not a command but a statement. Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. This is both comforting and carries with it also a warning. A reminder as well, as, as the writer of Hebrews often wants to do, both give comfort and a warning at the same time. Christ is always there for us. He doesn't change. His mercy is always there. His grace is always there. We cannot do these things absent His grace. We cannot keep His commands absent His working in us to love to come to love these things and as we come to love them, to do them. We need Him for that. But all these commands are grounded in Him. We love because He loves. We remember the stranger because He has done that. Because he has come as a stranger and, and blessed those who have received him. Marriage, marriage is a picture of Christ and his church. Therefore, we honor it. Christ says, don't love money. I am here with you. you. In having me, you have far more than you can ever have in money. All these things are grounded in Christ. And he doesn't change. Therefore, these commands will not change. What is grounded in him does not. So take comfort in the fact that he will always be there to help you with them. But know that these commands will always remain for us. There's never a time when we grow out of them. 
when cultural changes set them aside. These are always here for us. And He is always here for us. And so we are to remember them. So, there are those six commands. I commend them to you. I recommend spending time thinking about them and where they fit and how they fit in your life. Go to them, go to Christ with them and say, God, show me where I'm in error here and give me the grace to follow your commands well. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.